uh, back at it. We are back at it. Welcome back to another edition of the Pistols Firing Podcast. I am Carson Cunningham, joined as always by Colby Powell. Colby, did you have a good Masters weekend? Oh, I had a great weekend, but it's been just a terrible Monday. It's it's the Monday after the Masters. It's one of the saddest days of the year because I know that I have to wait 51 more weeks for Masters week to come back. So it's it's a very dark day in the Powell household on the Masters, on the Monday after the Masters. It is depressing, and we were spoiled since we just had one in November to where we didn't have to wait too long at all for a Masters. So it's going to be a long wait. And you and I can talk about Hideki Matsuyama's big win, how, how Victor Hovland did towards – the latter half of the show we do have some osu items on the docket but first let's hear from chris's university spirit your one-stop cowboy shop be sure to shop at chrisuniversityspirit.com we appreciate chris's sponsoring the pod they've been just such a fantastic partner for us and i'm sure you can get some golf gear there too if you want to play some golf after uh hitting up the masters all weekend so colby we have a few osu items to get to I think the biggest news item would be Cannon Cunningham, Cade's brother, uh, leaving the Oklahoma State coaching staff. And he's going to be, go be Cade's kind of manager, I guess, for his professional career. And I think a lot of people not associated with OSU, rivals, or just national folks just say, oh, of course. Uh, they had just hired him to get Cade, and now they kicked him out. Well, Mike Boynton made it pretty clear uh, publicly and privately that he would have had Cannon back if he ch- if he so cho- chose to. But for me, it seems like for me it seems like a pretty fun opportunity to go manage Cade because he's going to be going some cool places and meeting some cool people. Yeah, I mean, I I wasn't super surprised whenever this news came through. Look, Cannon was great at Oklahoma State. Cannon, obviously, a big part of uh, bringing him in. You hire guys who can recruit. Why wouldn't you hire the guy who can recruit the number one player in the country, one of the greatest high school prospects uh, to ever come into college basketball? So, obviously, that was part of it. But let's not act like Cannon Cunningham was just some sort of poster child who didn't do anything for Oklahoma State basketball aside from get Cade Cunningham through the door. He was key in the development this year of guys like Caleb Boone who took a big step forward. M.A. Moncrief, who I think that we saw a completely different M.A. Moncrief in March than the guy that we saw in November. He he grew uh, leaps and bounds during the season. And this is, I mean, it's a big deal for Cannon to go do this with Cade. Number one, they're obviously very close. So he and his brother get to stay together. But like you said, Cade is, first off, Cannon's going to make a lot more money working for Cade, I would assume. <laughs> uh, so that's part number one. I'm sure Cannon has a family himself that he wants to provide for and wants to make money and do all those things. But also, all the places that he's going to get to go, all the experiences that he's going to get to have in that NBA circuit. Uh, I'm sure Cade, you know, as as you know, we continue to open up travel and things. The NBA will do things. Kate will have stuff going on overseas and all over the country, uh, you know, domestically and internationally. It'll just be an unbelievable experience for Cannon and Kate. And to get to do it together, I think will be that much more special. Uh, blood's thicker than water. So Cade came to be with Cannon, and now Cannon's going to be with Cade. Uh, Oklahoma State definitely would have had him back if they could have, but I'm sure that they're happy for him and happy for Cade that they get to go live out their dreams together. Yeah, I mean, just – on the surface, for me, as an outsider looking in, what would be more thrilling? Going on the road to recruit a high school kid in Nacogdoches, Texas, or flying on a private jet with Cade and, you know, whatever, hanging out with LeBron James, most likely. I mean, who knows Who knows the type of people Cade's going to be hanging out with in the NBA circles once, you know, he gets there. The, to me, to be able to spend every day with your your brother and your best friend 
living that kind of life is just too good of an opportunity to turn down. And like, he obviously wanted to be a coach, but when an opportunity like that, I, mean, I think he, I think he just sat back and thought about it more now that Cade's obviously officially going to the NBA draft. That would appeal to me a whole lot, like just to, to, to be in those circles and just think of all the cool stories and people he's going to get to meet that to me just, and, and he's not going to be apart from his brother who they're, they're very close. So I just, to me, it makes perfect sense. And you're right. He will make probably more money working for Cade, but I don't know. I, I think both parties were happy with the, with the, uh, the arrangement. And again, I, I really think Mike Boyden would have had him back on staff. He's a young recruiter type. He obviously identifies with uh, this day and age of recruits, but uh, there's a, there is an opening on, on Mike Boynton's staff, but, but uh, for me, it's just, it's too good of an opportunity to turn down. Well, yeah. And my thing is I look at it, you know, whenever LeBron came in, uh, he brought a guy named Maverick Carter with him. I know a lot of people now are familiar with Maverick Carter because he's kind of turned into uh, a business tycoon, a business mogul. And he's kind of handled a lot of that stuff for LeBron James. And I don't know exactly what Cannon's role is going to be with Cade, but I wouldn't be shocked if it was something very similar to that, where 10, 15 years from now, we're looking at Cade as a superstar in the NBA. And we're looking at Cannon as the guy on the business side, who's making moves and, you know, if, if ever Cade decided that he wanted to do some of this stuff LeBron does, movies and stuff like that, uh, or, or even the stuff that LeBron has produced, the barbershop and everything that was happening there, all things that Maverick Carter was a huge part of, I think that Cannon could be the Maverick Carter to Cade's LeBron James, and I just think that that's pretty much a perfect fit. So um, I, I think it was great having them both in Stillwater. The statement that Mike Boynton and Oklahoma State released about him seems like they really loved having Cannon around and definitely would have had him back but it, it was time Cade was moving on uh and I, I feel like this is probably maybe not once in a lifetime I'm sure if Cannon wanted to stay now and then five years later wanted to go be with Cade I'm sure Cade would have him but this is a role that I'm sure Cade uh needed filled somebody to to manage things and I'm sure that his brother was his first choice I'm sure he told him look man I, I want you to come with me I want to do this with you and if you're Cannon how do you say no to that how do you say no to your little brother going to the NBA as the number one overall pick and he wants you to come with him and take care of him, make sure that everything is the way that it needs to be. So you, you can't say no to that. So couldn't be more happy for both of them. Uh, and, and I look forward to seeing them both back because Cade strikes me as the type of guy, Carson, who, you, you know, if, if let's say he gets drafted by the Timberwolves or somebody and they're playing in Oklahoma City, but they have an off night the night before and there's a game at GIA, Kate strikes me as the type of guy who, who's going to come back as often as he can to Stillwater. So I, I look forward to that in the future as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. That would be a lot cool to see him sitting courtside like many other players who have gone on to the NBA, like Marcus Smart and, and the like. Uh, Cade signs with Excel Sports Management Company, who they represent Jim Nance, Taylor Swift, Blake Griffin, Kevin Love, uh, Eli Manning, uh, Justin Rose. So, and so I think from Cade's perspective, you're signing with a obviously a well-respected management company, but I also want someone close to me that I absolutely 1000% trust that has my best interest at heart. And I think Cade, frankly, needed Cannon just as much as Cannon wanted to go be with Kate, because you you don't you're dipping into a realm that you're not familiar with, and you need to have someone that you 1,000% trust too. So I think Cade needs Cannon every much every bit as much the other way around. Yeah, I mean, and those are some huge celebrities that you listed. I mean, even other guys in the NBA, smaller names. You mentioned Blake Griffin, Kevin Love is with this group, Brandon Ingram, Ricky Rubio with this group as well. They have offices in New York, LA, and Miami. Obviously, the the big hubs around the country. And look, I, I don't know a ton about 
Excel Sports Management. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, most of these sports management companies are, are a dime a dozen. I'm sure that there's nuances in there. I'm sure some companies do things that others don't and vice versa, but uh, I'm not going to pretend to be some sort of Excel Sports Management uh, expert, but we knew Cade was going to hire somebody like this. So as long as he's taken care of, uh, you, you know, obviously the big fear, every so often, every few years, we hear a story about some athlete who got tied up with a financial advisor, an agent or something like this and just stole all their money, uh, did something ridiculous. Got to be surrounded with people you trust. And, and that's the thing for Cade now. It's it, it's going to be a very stark contrast between coming to Stillwater and everybody's taking care of you and you're, you're the big man on campus. And, you know, it, it's not like everybody's trying to get at your money. Cade in a couple of months from now is going to be a multi-multi-millionaire. And if he ever gets to the point where he's on a second contract in a Supermax, he's going to be a multi-hundred millionaire. And at that point, there are sharks in the water. And you better have people around you that you trust um, or, or you better have a really good idea of what's going on with your finances. Because I tell you what, when that much money is on the line, we've seen it. There's not a lot that people won't do when there's that much money on the line. So you have to have people you trust. Cade uh, seems like a very smart young man. And I expect that he, he will surround himself with the right kind of people uh, to make sure that he's taken care of and doesn't get taken advantage of. Yeah, and I still expect him to be the number one overall pick, which is an exclusive group. And he's a lot of eyeballs are going to be on Cade from the minute he gets drafted. So I, th I think those are great points. And the more I keep reading, the more people just are penciling him or sharpieing him in as the number one overall pick. The term generational uh, player is getting thrown around because what I read as on one of the, the daily bullets on PFB was there might have been better players per se than Cade in the last 10, 15 years, but very few as well-rounded as he is. His, his game all around is just superb and at every facet. And he, I, what I really like about him too, Colby, is Cage's jump shot already looks so silky at such a young age. Normally you see these, you know, number one picks, top 10 picks. They're super duper athletes and obviously can score, but their jump shot maybe not as refined. You think about LeBron James when he came into the league. But I think Cade's jumper is already like ready-made to be an elite shooter on top of being a ball handler distributor at six foot eight. He's just, he's the total package. And I, I can't wait to watch the draft process play out because I think he will perform, outperform his contemporaries once he gets in those, those camps and stuff like that with other top picks. Yeah, I'm with you. I, he will be the number one overall pick. I was reading something the other day, uh, some draft expert, I wish I could remember who it was, said, you know, even if a team that doesn't need Cade doesn't need that role filled on their team, gets the number one pick. He was saying they should still take Cade. He argued that he has <laughs> such a Swiss Army knife that they should still take him even if they don't need him. And obviously, if a team has that need, then they're going to take Cade. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I've tried to find a good player, Cobb. You know, we see throughout the season, people throw out Grant Hill. I, that's fine. I don't know that I totally love that. Uh, somebody actually said Chris Grant, Paul. Grant Hill wasn't a guard. I, I don't really no, see that. I, I don't love that one. I, I actually think... Chris Paul, obviously, these guys are much different sizes. I'm looking more at a style of play spot. You know, Chris Paul's not a great shooter, but he's a good shooter with a pretty shot. I think that's what Kate will be in the NBA. He's not going to be Steph Curry or Ray Allen. He's going to be a good shooter that has a pretty shot and can get it done whenever he needs to. He's going to be an elite passer. Uh, I think that he can be a good defender. I don't know if he'll be as good of a defender as Chris Paul's been throughout his career, but I know the size on those guys is much different. And if somebody wants to tweet at me, a guy who's six eight who, who they think's a better comp for Cade I'm I'm all ears but I think that I kind of like the Chris Paul comparison a little better just from a style of play standpoint 
Foul play, correct. I, I agree with that. They're much different in sizes, but certainly the the pull-up jumper is there. When, when he needs a, a go-to shot, that pull-up is deadly, just like Chris Paul. I think the comp that I've seen thrown around a lot that I kind of agree with is Luka Doncic, who's 6'7", 230. Yeah. Uh, prolific scorer, shoots 36% from three uh, this year, which I think is about what Cade will shoot out of the gate as a rookie, around 35% around there. He's such a good shooter already. So I think, I think Luka Doncic, is he going to be as good as Luka? We'll have to wait and see. But I think a comparison like that, much more of, of him than, say, even like a Ben Simmons. I just don't think Ben Simmons shoots it like Cade does, at least definitely because he doesn't even shoot threes. So I think Luka's a good comp, but it'll be fun to watch him in the NBA. We do have news on the uh, OSU spring game, Colby. The date is set, April 24th, and it's going to lead right into the OSU baseball game, which starts at 6. Uh, it's going to be fun, man. A, a, Fans are allowed in. You got to wear a mask, but we will have fans in Boone Pickens Stadium for a spring game. We still don't know the format yet, whether it's going to be what they've done in the past as like a glorified practice, seven on seven or an actual scrimmage. We're not totally sure yet, but we are going to have a spring football game, which is a, a sight a sight for sore eyes. Yeah, it'll be nice, and it'll go right into Oklahoma State hosting Texas. So it's going into a good baseball mm, game yeah. uh, as well. So if you just want to make a day out of it, you can. I think I'm going to try to talk my wife into that, and we'll see how, how much success uh, I have with that. Probably depends on what the weather is. Now, it, I don't know if it'll be a true scrimmage, a glorified practice, a seven-on-seven, seven, whatever the case may be. But, but if I could throw a guess out, a couple of weeks ago, Mike Gundy talked about the fact that this year in practice, they have much more flexibility than they've had in years past because of COVID. It, a lot of guys have come back so you have like these super super seniors who are sticking around and then you still have this incoming class so there's just a lot more kids than you would normally have i'm gonna go out on a limb carson i actually think that oklahoma state this year will play an 11 on 11 true scrimmage because i think that they will finally for the first time in a long time have enough bodies to do so i could be wrong could end up being seven on seven i don't think it's going to be a practice i don't think they're going to have practice stations uh around because i think they've got enough guys not to do that so i think it'll be seven on seven or a full 11 on 11 uh scrimmage and i would lean if, if you were forcing me to make a guess i think they're going 11 on 11 they've got more kids than they usually do yeah, I hope so. They, they definitely definitely have more numbers than in years past, for sure, with the unique circumstance. So I think they should at least try to do a portion of 11 on 11 just for the fans' sake. Just so I, that way it's an actual somewhat of a simulation of, of a football game. So what storyline are you looking forward to most uh, if, if you do attend with, with the misses? That's a good question. Storyline I'm looking forward to the most. Um, how long does it take Spencer Sanders – to throw either his first interception or the first ball that should have been intercepted. You know, if we get to the third throw of the game and it hits a safety right in the hands and he drops it. Okay. To me, that's still not a very good read. I I'm still, we're all still looking for that progression from Spencer Sanders, where he just stops making the bonehead plays. He's so talented. He's so good. I think his ceiling is so high, but we've got to stop throwing it to the other team. It just, at some point, that next step has to be taken. And, and you know, it's not even, we talked about this a ton last year during the season. It's not even a contested play down the field where a guy makes a great play. That happens. That's part of football. Mahomes, Brady, Rogers, these guys, they all throw interceptions. It happens. What I'm talking about is when he rolls left, spins right, throws throws into the middle of the field, 
12 yards away from a receiver and it hits a, a linebacker right in the middle of the chest. Those are the ones that we can't live with and that drive you absolutely crazy. So I think that, uh, I mean, it's definitely a cop-out to just go straight to the quarterback. But I think if I were to watch one thing in the spring game, it's Spencer Sanders' decision-making. Is he, is he throwing uh, to his guys? No, I, I certainly agree. That's the one thing that we're going to be talking about all the way into the, the first game next year. And while I don't think there is a quote-unquote quarterback battle or quarterback controversy with Shane Illingworth, I think that's something that will make it interesting. Well, the one thing that will make it a quarterback battle is if Sanders struggles with interceptions in spring ball and certainly into fall camp. That's, that's just something you can't do if you're going to be the starter. And we all like Shane Illingworth's potential, but this is Spencer Sanders' team. This is what his, you know, his, he's a, now one of the most senior-laden players on the team. He's, you know, the team's gotten younger, he's gotten older, and it's his, his, his team to take hold of. So that's his one big bugaboo. And he's talked a lot about it. Mike Gundy's talked a lot about it, just how overly competitive he is. He wants to make the perfect read, the perfect play every time. I think the spring game will be a great showcase to, to avoiding mistakes. And that's what I think that's what all the fans want to see as well. A uh, storyline for me is Marshall Scott wrote a nice piece about this on PFB. The running back depth all of a sudden is pretty strong. I mean, I think we were all concerned, Colby, about Chuba Hubbard leaving. LD Brown was potentially going to go as well, but he's back. And then you, all of a sudden you have Dominic Richardson, Desmond Jackson, and this Jalen Warren kid apparently is turning a lot of heads already in Stillwater at running backs. So the depth there is pretty good. I, I love Dominic Richardson. I think he's got big potential. And we talked a lot about it during the season, Colby. L.D. Brown was their best back for a majority of the season last year. Yeah, he was. L.D. Brown, man, he looked so fast, elusive, powerful. I mean, he was just a good runner last year. I expect L.D. Brown to get a majority of the work next season with Dominic Richardson filling in as that number two guy. I'm still really curious to see how they use Brennan Presley, just trying to get the ball in his hands, whether it's jet sweeps, uh, you know, kind of like the touchdown he scored against Kansas State. But I think it'll be primarily L.D. Brown. I will be curious to see what the uh, receiving game looks like for running backs coming out of the backfield, because I think Oklahoma State in the past hasn't leaned quite enough on just like little halfback slip screens, just slip them out of the backfield, let all the pass rushers come and dump it over their heads because Oklahoma State has struggled with offensive line play uh, for nearly a decade now, it feels like, probably closer to half a decade. And I just feel like a good way to slow down the, the opposition's pass rush, let them come, dump it over their heads to the running back and let him take off with a couple blockers out in front of him. And I don't feel like Oklahoma State's done a ton of that. And I feel like that would be a huge help to the offensive line. So hopefully uh, one of these backs Oklahoma State feels confident in as a receiver out of the backfield and can use a guy in those scenarios. Because look, I, I know every year we like to think that the offensive line is going to be better and there's going to be improvements. I, we keep talking ourselves into that. I think Charlie Dickey's a good coach. You just lost Tevin Jenkins. Tevin Jenkins is going to be a first-round draft pick in the NFL. I, I was just looking at a mock draft about half an hour ago. I had him going 21, 20 or 21. Uh, so you're losing, I mean, an elite college offensive lineman. And I, I just, I don't know, man. My, my confidence that that position group just won't be high until they prove to me that they can do it for 12 games. Uh, and they haven't done that yet. So I think you've got to get creative in how to slow down opposition's pass rushes. And I think running backs coming out of the backfield as receivers is a good way to do that. So hopefully they feel comfortable with one of those guys in the backfield uh, being able to catch the ball. Yeah, I think that's a great way. I, I would have liked to have seen more running back screens. If you're not blocking well, <laughs> let the D-line run on through and then dump it down to a back. So I, I like that theory uh, a lot as well. There are a lot of catches to be had in the receiving core, Colby. Obviously, Tylen Wallace going to the NFL. Uh, 
Dylan Stoner obviously going as well. So there's a lot of catches to be uh, to be won from the receiving group. And I think Brennan Presley is a guy that obviously a lot of people are circling as a name that can step up. He only had one catch during the regular season and then just exploded in the, in the bowl game against Miami. Tay Martin also played really well against Miami. So those are, those are kind of two guys I expect to, to step up at the, the receiver core. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I think it was, I think it was Gundy a couple of weeks ago after spring practice talked about, you know, Brennan Presley, what he did in the bowl game and how they would have loved it for him to have been able to do some of that stuff earlier in the season, but because they didn't have spring practice last year and everything with COVID, he just wasn't, hadn't quite caught on yet to the offense. I, I don't totally know how much I buy that. Uh, I think that's definitely a little lip service to appease the crowd that's in the camp that I'm in, which is you should have been using him more throughout the season. I mean, how complicated is it to uh, let the kid who's fast know that he's going to get the ball and he needs to run with it? I, obviously, it's a lot more complex than that, but I don't think it's near as complex as Gundy was making it whenever he was talking about not using him until the bowl game. So I think that he will be a huge part of Oklahoma State's offense. Tay Martin, I'm, I'm very curious on. Uh, you know, he's been around a little bit. I, I would say Brennan Presley leads the team this year in receptions. Am, am I? Am I? Am I crazy? Uh, I don't think you're crazy. Um, I like Tay Martin a lot. I do too. I do too. That's why I kind of paused. You notice I paused for a second. Yeah, I hesitated. A hair. I, I, I think Brennan Presley will lead the team in receptions. He's just, uh, because I think that he'll get a lot of short, quick stuff because it's just, it's really about just getting the ball in his hands and let him make people miss. He, he can be, uh, I was looking at a chart yesterday of receivers in the NFL and it was like yards after catch, uh, and then forced missed tackles, stuff like that. And it was one of those that goes from the bottom left to the upper right and in the upper right way away from any other receiver in the NFL was Debo Samuel who is elite for the 49ers with the ball in his hands. I think Brennan Presley could be that type of guy. So I, I expect him to lead the team in receptions next year on a lot of short, quick stuff, get him in the open field, get some free stats for him and for Spencer Sanders. I like it. Any other storylines you're looking at? Do you want to move on to baseball? Uh, I'm probably good on football. I mean, defensive side, obviously, we know the secondary is going to be elite. Uh, so I'll be curious, too, to, to see whether – they have Spencer Sanders going against Trey Sterling, Colby Harvell, Peel, Jart, Bernard, those guys, or whether they have uh, those guys going against the second teamer and then have Spencer Sanders going against the second team defense. I'll be curious uh, as to see what the rosters are for the spring game, because if Spencer Sanders is going to be making better decisions, I'll be very curious to see whether it's against Trey Sterling and Colby Harvell Peel or against a couple of freshmen that we've never heard of uh, who are just kind of trying to kind of trying to cut their teeth. So that that's one other thing I'll be looking for in the spring game yeah that'll be fun I can't wait it's been so long since we had a spring game and uh, I'm just ready for football season already it's the it's by far I always say this Colby it's the longest off season by far college football just takes forever to get here so that'll be kind of a nice reprieve in the springtime in the meantime OSU baseball is playing awesome Colby they swept UNC Wilmington and uh, they're ranked 11th in the country so Josh Holiday's got a role in baseball yeah, OSU is balling. Uh, Encarnacion has just been unbelievable. He's been so hot. And Oklahoma State, they're rolling. They were supposed to play, I believe, with Central Arkansas this past weekend. But then there were COVID issues in the UCA program. So they were able to schedule UNC Wilmington on short notice. And then Friday's game got rained out. So they had to play a doubleheader on Saturday. They win both of those games. Uh, Oklahoma State puts up 27 runs in three games. I know it's UNC Wilmington. It's still 27 runs in three games. Uh, I mean, the weekend before, they played a three-game series against West Virginia. 
Virginia, where they scored 30, uh, make that 31 runs in three games. Now, 21 of those were in the Saturday uh, matinee against West Virginia. But still, Oklahoma State is just hitting the cover off of the baseball right now. So now it gets interesting because tomorrow, Oklahoma State plays Oral Roberts. This is a good ORU baseball team. So that'll be a good one uh, at O'Brate Stadium. That's on ESPN+. And then this weekend, three-game series at TCU, which should be a good one as well. Those will also all be on ESPN+. Uh, and then Oklahoma State looks like home for a couple against Pine Bluff and then you've got the Texas series uh, whenever the spring game's happening so ORU and TCU three games this week if Oklahoma State could go three and one against ORU and then three games against TCU I think that would be a great four game stretch this week yep that's a great stretch and uh, again Josh Holiday just doing an unbelievable job and I, I'm ready for a regional at New Obrate Stadium I, I think that would be just spectacular a great way to kind of cap off the year of the, of the new stadium. I, I haven't got to go to a great stadium yet. Have you gone yet? No, I haven't. It's getting tickets are tricky. Um, my parents have some tickets, but they go to all the games. So then they never have extra tickets. And when they do, it's like tomorrow, uh, my mom offered for me to go to the ORU game with her. Uh, it's at six o'clock. I'm playing in a member guest scramble at six o'clock tomorrow. So it just hasn't worked out for me to get up there. Uh, one thing I will say about the regionals, I don't know if you saw how they're doing it this year or not, but basically because of COVID protocols in a lot of states around the country, college baseball is not going to be able to do what it typically does, which is you have the selection show, you announce the regional sites, you announce who's going where, and then they all show up and start playing baseball on Wednesday or Thursday of that week. That's not going to work. You have to have a couple of weeks notice to get all the protocols and everything in place. So actually schools from around the country will be submitting their bids a few weeks in advance before we even know what the seating is going to be to get regional and super regional sites. So it's going to be really weird this year in college baseball how all that breaks down but man I, I surely Oklahoma State would have submitted a bid to host both a regional and a super regional and with that new stadium which by the way some like big uh Twitter uh poll slash bracket thing ran and O'Brate Stadium was voted as the uh the best college baseball stadium in the country right now surely with that new stadium Oklahoma State can land a regional if not both a regional and super regional which would just be unbelievable to go up and watch some NCAA tournament baseball at what is clearly one of the best best parks in the country which would be quite a role reversal from back when they got hosed out of a regional so many years ago because there weren't enough hotel rooms in Stillwater and the, yeah. the stadium was probably knocked for being, you know, Alley P what it was. So well, and then two, two years ago, they were supposed to get the regional in Stillwater and then all the flooding came through. You remember the flooding? Oh yes. yes. Forgot so, about that. Yeah. So then they couldn't even get out and play at Alley P and it ends up getting moved to Bricktown. Then Trevor Boone uh, breaks the breaks the sign with the home run against Nebraska. That's still just an electric moment in Oklahoma state sports history. So hopefully we can get another moment like that this year, but we can get it in Stillwater at O'Bray stadium. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Uh, let's talk some masters Colby, uh, Victor Hovland. <laughs> You know, I, I, I get the app running on masters.com. I got the four box going with the with the live uh, from holes four, five, and six, amen corner, you name it. Victor's coming through in the feature groups on the first hole, and he makes a triple bogey on his first hole of the tournament. You're like, well, that, that'll be that. But then Victor proceeded to reel off four or five birdies uh, on that front nine and just ends up T21. So a great bounce back from Victor. I just... I think this course suits him so much. Once he gets rid of the big numbers, and he had a double in his final round as well. 
But once he gets rid of the big numbers, man, he's just a birdie machine out there. I mean, he just – he made four in a row in his final round on 12, 13, 14, and 15. So, I think Victor is going to be up near the leaderboard for the next 10, 15, who knows, 20 years. He just he, – he really bounced back from a really tough start. Yeah, it's one of those things. Uh, Augusta National, it really rewards great golf and it punishes bad golf. And that, to me, is why it's the best course in the world because these guys play courses all the time where, you know, guys get lucky, hit bad shots, and they end up being okay. Or they hit good shots. Sometimes we'll see this in the U.S. Open where a guy hits a great shot and then he gets punished by the golf course because there's some quirky little ridge or something or, or the course just is set up unfairly like a few years back uh, in, in New York where Phil went up and hit his ball while it was still rolling. You don't see that at the Masters. But what you see is like on the first hole where Victor Hovland made a seven on the first hole on Thursday. Matthew Wolf made an eight on the first hole on Friday. It's, it's a tough golf course, but it rewards good golf. And after Victor Hovland made that triple, he got it back to even through six. And I think he was three over again through 12. And then he got it back to one over at the end of the day. Ends up finishing T21. And he's just, he's steady. He, he's very steady. Now, I, I don't know, um, looking forward in his career, I, I don't know if we're looking at like a guy who wins five majors or something, like an all-time great. But he is a guy who I think can break the long-time major drought that Oklahoma State golfers have had. I mean, it's, it's just play in 86 at the PGA, holding out from the bunker. That's it for Oklahoma State. And I, I think Hoblin can be the guy to break that. So another good performance, T21 at the Masters. Obviously, was never in contention to win or anything. But uh, he had a much, much better week than his fellow Oklahoma State Cowboy, who just, I mean, everything that could go wrong for Matt Wolf went wrong right up until the time that he signed his scorecard and left the property. Yeah, I want to talk about that. But one last note from me on, on Hovland is the encouraging thing for me is we all remember when he won in Puerto Rico, where uh, was it Dominican, one of those, where yep, he, Puerto Rico. He, yeah, Puerto Rico, he said, I suck at chipping. He's clearly improved that. He's so much better around the greens. He had two or three chip-ins for birdie uh, one of his rounds uh, in the last second or third round, I believe it was, and clearly has improved. Yeah, on, Friday, on Friday, he was right Friday. on the line. The cut line was three over. He was three over for the tournament through 14. He chipped in for Eagle on 15. He made about a 20-footer on 16. He chipped in for Birdie on 17. And just like that, he's four shots inside the cut line. Yeah, and that, that to me, it bodes well for him come major, major time is the chipping around the greens is one of the things he really struggled with early in his career. And, man, he's just – he's so good. And I think – this time last year, we were probably picking Matthew Wolf to win more majors because he, he nearly won the PGA. He, he was in the final group at the U.S. Open with Bryson DeChambeau. And, man, Colby, he's lost his number one asset, which is his driver. He still hits it a long ways, but he's one of the last in the field on strokes gained off the tee because he can't keep it in the ballpark. And so he, he misses the cut by a mile, and you referenced it. He signed for an incorrect scorecard and apparently it was hole I believe 17 where he missed a putt and tapped in for bogey and I think maybe his playing partner didn't see that he had tapped it in or he kind of ran up there and tapped it in I don't know if if his partner messed up the score and he just signed it incorrectly I think that's what occurred but nonetheless he got DQ'd from Augusta which just he was already going to miss the cut so it's kind of a formality but you don't ever want to be DQ'd at a place like like Augusta National no, you don't. And the, the problem is, like, right now in the moment, 
we all know, okay, he was 11 over. There was clearly just some sort of mix up. There, there was nothing malicious about what he was doing. It's not like, you, you know, and this is like way back in, in the annals of history, but in 1985, I think it was at the Indonesian open VJ Singh actually was outside the cut line by a shot. He and his partners went over their scorecards and everything signed. And then VJ went back, erased one of his scores and put it in one shot lower and turned his card in and made the cut. That, that's not what was happening with Matthew Wolf. He was 11 over. He was eight outside the cut line. Nothing malicious at all. And, and today, sitting here, we all know that. We know it was a mistake. We know it was a mix-up. But in 15 years, whenever we're looking at Matthew Wolf's career results at the Masters, what are we going to see? We're going to see, hopefully, a green jacket or two in there, a couple of T22s, a couple of missed cuts, you know, a T55. And then we're going to see 2021 DQ. And, and I hope that people keep the perspective in as, as it becomes a, uh, a mark in history, as opposed to something that just happened a couple of days ago, that nothing malicious happened and it really was just an accident. Uh, but yeah, it's an MC certainly looks better than a DQ. So look, you, you got to check those things, double, triple check, make sure everything's right on the scorecard. Um, but it's, it's tough for Matthew Wolf. I, I, I saw a couple of pictures of him on Friday. He was sitting on the bench next to 13T at Augusta National, and he just had his head in his hands. He was looking down, and he just he, – he looked totally, totally dejected. He's in a slump right now, and, and it happens. All golfers go through slumps. But I, I wonder if Matthew Wolf, you, you know, he was a, a prodigy coming out of high school. He comes to Oklahoma State as a true freshman. He's on the team. He makes the winning putt to win the national championship. As a sophomore, he wins the individual championship. He comes out. He immediately wins on tour as a rookie in his fourth start with a walk-off eagle putt from off the green. Then he has a top uh, five finish at the PGA, and then he has a top three finish at the U.S. Open. And now I feel like for the first time in his golfing life, he's facing, like, real adversity. Like, you're really in a slump. He really can't find his game right now, and you can see it on his face. And I'm just rooting so, so hard for Matt Wolf to snap out of it because he just doesn't look like he's having a lot of fun out there right now. And when he is having fun and he is playing well, I mean, he's one of the most fun guys to watch in the world. Yeah, hopefully he can regain the form that we, we saw early in his career. I, I'm with you. I think this is the first time that he's really dealt with disappointment. And we all know golf's a frustrating game. And for a guy who's had very little disappointment in his career, and again, he's what, 21, 22 years old. I mean, he's very young and hasn't really experienced this before. So he'll be back. He's just going through some natural growing pains as a professional. Because Colby, being a professional golfer, it's hard to win. It's hard to compete. I mean, just look at Hideki Matsuyama. He wins the Masters and hadn't won a tournament anywhere in the world for four years. And this is a guy who hits the ball as good as anybody. He's been top six in strokes gained approach for the last six, seven years. And this is a guy that is one of the best players in the world. And he, he struggles to contend. He, he hadn't contended leading into the masters, but Colby, I think he got crowned a little bit by the rain on Saturday. We, the, the course was playing so firm and so fast, the rain delay happens and it softens up to where he can just start pin hunting. And he fires a 30 on the back nine and that gave him all on Saturday. And that gave him all the cushion that he needed to, to win by a shot. So Hideki Matsuyama, Wins the Masters, first uh, Japanese male to to win at Augusta.
Yeah, and real quick on Wolf, uh, he turns 22 on Wednesday. So I want to go ahead and wish a happy early oh, nice. birthday to Matthew Wolf, and I hope he has a great week. You, you know, if you, if you want to play golf, go play golf. If you want to just get away from the course and forget about the game, do whatever you need to do to get yourself right. So happy early birthday to Matt Wolf. And Hideki, to me, is an incredibly popular Masters champion. I, I've always liked Hideki. He, he's always done it his own way, whether it's the swing with the paws at the top, the fact that he can speak English, but he is super shy and hates doing interviews so he brings a translator along and gives you know five second answers so that he doesn't have to do long interviews even the japanese media i read a story this morning carson and it said that in 2016 members of the japanese media found out that not only was hideki married but that hideki had a daughter and none of the japanese media even knew this and he i mean he already had the daughter she was already born and then they found out that he was both married and had a daughter he's very shy he's very private he He's very reserved. The dude, his on-course earnings over the course of his career was like $35 million plus whatever he's made in endorsements both here and in Japan. He drives a minivan. There were pictures this morning of him at the Atlanta airport with the green jacket draped over his arm, waiting in line to board his commercial flight from Atlanta, not to Tokyo, but to Chicago, where he was going to connect to then head to Tokyo. He's just... (laughs) He's a very reserved guy. He's modest. He's humble. And, you know, like you said, two weeks in a row now, we had Jordan Spieth last week and Hideki Matsuyama win this week, for the fir- both for the first time since the summer of 2017. And that's the thing about slumps in golf. You never know when they're going to creep up on you, and you never know how long they're going to last. Nobody would have thought Spieth or Hideki was going to go, we're going to go four years without winning from the time they won in 2017. Nobody thought Ricky would be in the place that he's at right now. And it's just, it's different for every guy. I was thrilled to see Hideki uh, break through and get this, this major master's championship victory. Um, and, And it was just, it was awesome. But like you said, on Saturday, I thought that he was the only one who really adjusted to the softer conditions after the, the rain. Everybody else was leaving putts short, whereas Hideki was ramming them right in the heart. And then on Sunday, he came out. He was a robot for 14 holes. Then he hits it in the water on 15. Then he bogeys 16. He bogeys 18. But he had bogeys to give. Whenever you're up by six with, with five holes to play in a golf tournament, you can drop a few strokes. And that's what he did. But I was happy to see Hideki uh, get the win. To me, he's a, he's a very popular Masters champion. Yep, he's certainly of the caliber of player that you want to see win at Augusta. You know, I just think back to players like Charles Schwartzel who haven't sniffed winning again. I, I like to see players of that ilk win. And obviously it means a lot to Japan. Apparently he's like Tiger Woods in Japan. Like it's a, it's a golf crazed country as it is. And you're he, right. He, he really is like Tiger Woods in Japan. They love him. It's unbelievable. And he really is so shy. I read a nice piece by, by Ryan Lavner of, of Golf Channel, just kind of detailing just how private he is. And so he, he probably won't say much at the champion's dinner, but there should be some good, some good Japanese food on, on the menu. So it was, a, it was a fun Masters. I picked JT. I, he faded so hard on the weekend. I was very shocked to see that. Shocked to see him make an eight after the rain delay on, on 13, the par five. But uh, Gordon Spieth, I expected to play well. He was, he was T3 and didn't make a putt seemingly all week, all weekend rather. And, but it was a fun, it was a fun tournament. It was a fun leaderboard, kind of a, a wacky tournament with it played like a U.S. Open the first two and a half, three rounds, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And you know, there's no such thing as a good eight Carson. Like we all know that, but it's a bad eight when you've got 81 yards into a par five for your third shot 
from the middle of the fairway and you make eight. And that's what Justin Thomas did. It was all kinds of an epic disaster. And if I still sound upset about it, yes, it's because I also picked Justin Thomas to win. And I had Justin Thomas rostered in every pool that I participated in. Uh, I didn't quite break even this week, but I almost broke even, barely lost any, uh, not enough that I would sweat it. So good masters, fun masters. Uh, it was pretty boring for most of the day on Sunday, really until Hideki yeah. hit it in the water on 15. And we've kind of now, Carson had back-to-back boring Sundays at the masters. And it might've been the no laying up guys yesterday who tweeted out and were like, did we sell our soul? to experience the 2019 masters because we've kind of had a couple of Sunday duds since then after what was the most exhilarating day, maybe in the history of golf. So hopefully uh, next year we get a masters that comes down to the wire with about five guys having a chance to win standing on 15 or 16 tee box. Hey, if that's the price I have to pay to to witness what we did in 2019, so be it. I would pay that price over and over and over again, Carson. During the rain delay, they showed the replay of Tiger winning. And I just, I was like, I'm just pretending this is Tiger defending his April crown right now. I, I, I just miss seeing him on, on Sunday and his, his Sunday red. I, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I've really noticed the past two masters. So in the 2019 masters, the huge storyline was number 12 and Poulter hit it in the water. Kepka, Finau and Molinari all came up short and went in the water. The last two masters I've watched, everybody on Sunday who's in contention is blowing it to the back fringe. They're hitting an extra club and they're just sending it to the back fringe. And I'm like that 2019 masters really changed the way. I think a lot of guys look at that hole because they're like, dude, all I have to do is survive this hole. And then the course kind of gets easy with 13 and 15. Just don't make a huge mistake on 12. And that's what we saw yesterday. Hideki put it in the back bunker, made bogey. Xander was on the back fringe. The earlier groups that came through, they were all hitting it to the back fringe. And uh, that 2019 masters just, I think changed the way a lot of guys look at that hole and play that hole. Yeah. Cause you can go Eagle, Eagle birdie on uh, 13, 15 and, and 16. So I think you're right about that. It's a good point. Colby always good to chat with you. I hope you enjoyed the masters like I did as well. And uh, we'll get back with you later in the week. Absolutely. Everybody have a great week as always go pokes. <laughs>